Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 153 with Christopher Curtin from Eclat Chocolate. Always surround yourself with the best people. Even, you know, if there's two places in town and one's a world-class chocolatier and the other one's like a mediocre bakery, but you really want to do bakery, I would still go work for the chocolatier because you're going to learn more on just how to work and, and ethics and and just the whole culture of doing something really well than going to work for something mediocre. Even that's what your passion is. I know that might make no sense to some people, but um, it'll pay off in the long run. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spear. On the show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry who took a different route. They're caterers, research chefs, personal chefs, cookbook authors, food truckers, farmers, cottage bakers, and all sorts of culinary renegades. I myself fall into the personal chef category as I started my own personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, 11 years ago. And while I started working in kitchens in the early 90s, I've literally never worked in a restaurant. Hey, good morning, everyone, or afternoon, or whenever it is you're listening to this. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. So today we have another chocolate episode. Chocolate's delicious. You can never really have too many chocolate episodes. So this week's guest is Christopher Curtin. He is the certified master chef and chocolatier behind Eclat Chocolate, which he founded in Westchester, Pennsylvania in 2004. Interestingly enough, I was living in Westchester when he opened the shop, which is how I first got to know of him. After attending culinary school, he spent 14 years honing his skills alongside some of the world's top chocolate makers across Belgium, France, Germany, Switzerland, Spain, and Japan. That's some really awesome training. You know, a lot of people kind of go to one country and focus on that type of chocolate. Eclat's gone on to receive some really great acclaim in recent years. They were recognized as having, quote, the best chocolate in America by Bon Appetit magazine. And he's gone on to do some really awesome collabs with uh, Eric Repair and Anthony Bourdain, as well as he has an upcoming one with Jean George, which he talks about on the episode. He's also worked with Victory Brewing, one of my favorite breweries. Uh, You might know that I had Bill Kovaleski, co-founder of the brewery on the podcast. So it was really cool to hear that he was doing a hop beer chocolate. I haven't tried that yet, but I'm going to have to seek it out. So we talked about his take on the chocolate business and what makes Eclat stand out. I wanted to know, you know, what wisdom he's picked up in 18 years. Are there any secrets to the longevity? How do you stand out in a market that seems possibly oversaturated? I wanted to talk about employees. Where is he finding them? What kind of people are coming to work for him in his chocolate shop? And we kind of talk about traditional approaches to both chocolate making and maybe how you run a kitchen. He says gimmicks aren't really his thing. While they do do some interesting stuff like chocolate with thyme and mushroom, you know, he says that uh, he doesn't really want to do something like bacon in chocolate. 
which I'm going to be honest, I kind of love, but I get his point. And when we were talking about documentation in the kitchen, you know, I'm very pro phone as long as it's being used for work. But it sounds like he is not really in favor of that and still wants to hold on to the traditional notepad because, you know, once you kind of open the floodgates there, how do you control that with your employees? So I thought that was interesting because most of the chefs that I'm talking to these days really love having the phones in the kitchen for the technological aspect. So where do you stand on this? Let me know. So let's jump into the episode. I hope you enjoy this one. As always, I welcome comments. Find me on Instagram at Chefs Without Restaurants or hit me up via email at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. As always, go to chefswithoutrestaurants.org. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter where I think I'm sharing some really interesting stuff. You can get gig referrals and leads if you work as a personal chef or a caterer. And you can also find the free Facebook group where we're having conversations around food entrepreneurship and just, you know, building some fun relationships. So the show will be coming right up after a word from this week's sponsor. COVID has redefined the world of dining. While the pandemic certainly upended the restaurant experience, the personal chef industry experienced record growth. The United States Personal Chef Association represents nearly 1,000 chefs around the U.S. and Canada, and even Italy. USPCA provides a strategic backbone that includes liability insurance, training, communications, certification, and more. It's a reassurance to consumers that the chef coming into their home is prepared to offer them an experience along with their meal. Now, join with our Inflation Fighter Special and save $75 on Premier, Provisional, and Preparatory Memberships. You can join today at USPCA.org and use code INFLATIONFIGHTER22. You can call Angela with questions at 1-800-995-2138, extension 705, or email her at A-P-R-A-T-H-E-R at USPCA.org. Payment plans are available. And as always, all this information will be in the show notes. And now, on with the show. Thanks so much, and have a great week. Hey, good morning, Chef. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Good morning. I'm excited to talk to you about chocolate today. It's one of my favorite things. I've had, uh, I had another chocolatier. We have someone here in Frederick that has a shop, and he came on a couple weeks ago. So we're kind of doing some chocolate talk this season. Oh, that's great to know. I mean, we're, uh, you know, we're not the regular breed, it seems. We're a little bit different than the savory chefs or even the pastry chefs. So, what year did you start the shop? We started, we're on 18 years now. Wow, so I can't a, believe it's been that long. It's crazy. I mean, I, so for our listeners, I used to live in Westchester and I was living there when you opened shop. And I remember I could walk there. I lived on Gay Street and you were a couple blocks from where I was living. And I was really excited when you opened up, but I've, lived in Frederick, Maryland now for 15 years this summer. So that sounds right. It sounds crazy to me that it's been that long, but 18 years, huh? I can't believe it. And then 14 years, you know, in Europe before that. And so I put those years together and I'm like, I can't be that old. And then again, you know, occasionally it dawns on me that yes, I I am officially that, that old. So what is it? Time flies when you're having fun. Yeah. It's uh, I think I posted that the other day about the anniversary of, uh, I actually got my Meister diploma or the last exam part day of the exam was on july 4th in germany when i did that the, you know the six day exam so it's kind of ironic that i became a meister on july 4th so what is a meister condita meister is sort of yeah, i wouldn't compare you can't, can't compare anything to mof it's a little bit different it's more uh book 
related than doing giant show pieces like in France, but it's sort of like the MOF. It's you're a certified Meister, and anybody who has a pastry shop or bakery in Germany at least has to have a Meister on premise, even if it's like brownies and stuff. That might have changed since I've left, but they're pretty strict about that. So that guarantees a certain level of quality, it seems. How did you get into this, the the chocolate making? Was it something you're always interested in? And I mean, I want to hear a little bit about your training and where you studied. You know, you never know where these things start out from. But in another lifetime, it, you know, before I did kitchen work, uh, I did a cross-country ski racing and bike racing. Ski racing was really my, my thing. And obviously, I supplemented that in the summer by doing bike racing and training with all the speed skaters in my hometown which in Madison, Wisconsin, was kind of the mecca of bike racing and speed skating in the 80s. I just loved the intensity of bike racing and ski racing. Ski racing is actually very technical, so you can win a race by not being as strong or as fit, but just purely by working more efficiently and, and skiing more smart. And that's very much like kitchen work, where you're working on technique and just knife skills and, and being aware of your surroundings. And so to me, ski racing is an endurance sport, just like working in the kitchen is an endurance sport. So it's, it's you're kind of putting those two together. And so I just loved working in high-end kitchens and, you know, usually kitchens of quality. That's the similarity. I don't know that I would put those two together and see the similarity. I mean, when you explain it like that, it makes sense. To me, I mean, even, you know, the, the old quotes in the kitchen, you know, with, with movement and economy of motion and things like that, and those are all the things that ski racing is all about that's that's to me the correlation between sports and and kitchen work especially technical sports well chocolate making is such a specialized thing how did you get into the chocolate making is were you did you grow up like really interested in sweets and desserts and all that you know i worked in the kitchens my first job was at 14 petting hamburgers at a place called daddy dumpings dowry in madison you know, they got like, you know, best burger in America and USA Today like back in the, you know, 70s or something. And then I went to school and thinking I was going to be a professor like everyone else in my family. And then I'm like, what am I doing? And then I went back to working at different kitchens. I worked at Flagstaff House and just got really interested in amazing kitchens and, and just the, the culture of the kitchens and trying to do things well. And then I went to brief stint at a culinary school out in Vermont. And I'm like, why am I paying all this money when I could learn from, you know, the horse's mouth or direct from the very best? So that's when I went to Europe and thinking I'd be there for a year and got stuck and then almost didn't come back and came back 14 years later and worked all over. So that was 14 years, like in a straight shot, like you went over there and were just there for 14 years? Yeah. So, I mean, Belgium, France, Germany, Switzerland, Spain, and then I was a year in Japan. Now, at that point, were you just looking to do chocolate or did you tinker with savory while you were over there? I did some savory, but mostly pastry, bake. I mean, I worked a year in a bakery. I did a month in a butcher shop just because I was in Germany. So I just, you know, to me, it's so important to be curious. And you might learn something there that even I knew I would never be a butcher. It's just, it's interesting to see how someone do something and you might learn. And also people that are successful and work really technically precise you learn things from them like even how they hold something or or so it's just so important to be curious and like i said even though i knew i'd never be a butcher it was an important lesson to to work in that field it's completely different than chocolate obviously so i learned pastry small breads as part of the exam 
but I really felt that there was, you know, let's do something different. And maybe I figured that out for my father because my father was a historian and nobody was doing African history when he first started out. And he actually started the first African studies program in the country and became very well known for the um, history of slave trade and all over world history. He found a niche that not many people were doing. So in, in Europe, at least, there's a lot of mid-sized chocolate companies. Here, there's Blummer, where it's all computerized, and there's four guys sitting at a computer program you know, panel, and that's it. Or there's a really small artisan people like myself. There seems to be not very many mid-sized chocolate companies. But in Europe, you know, we have, you know, like, Copenhagen and some other places that work, Marcolini and other places that work that, you know, they had 30 to 40 people on the floor, you know, producing. So you learn a lot about quality, but also learn how to to continue that quality in, a, I wouldn't say mass production, but in a larger scale. Now, did you have aspirations to come back and open a chocolate shop? Like, what was your mindset when you were over there learning? I did. I mean, I have huge respect for, you know, especially you know, the pastry chef at Four Seasons and I see what he does and, you know, sometimes miss the fact that I could have gone and done something with Four Seasons or a chain or Ritz-Carlton or done something really unique in a chain like that and what they have to offer. But the goal from day one was to come back and start my own place. First of all, why Westchester? Because it sounds like you're, I mean, you're obviously not from there. And, you know, what what was the, set the stage? How did you get that shop open? Well, it's very interesting. I mean, well, it's, it's obvious because my parents were retired. My father and both of my parents went to Swarthmore and my father taught at Swarthmore and my uncle was at Swarthmore. And so they're all from this area, sort of. Um, my father was born in Philadelphia, even though his family was living down in West Virginia with my grandfather's work. And I decided, you know, it's, it's time to come home and, and do something. Madison is an amazing town, but it's in the middle of, it's nowhere. It's it's sort of like Collegeville in Pennsylvania. It's like this one liberal, tiny liberal island of, in the rest. So it's an amazing place, but I could see if I had larger aspirations that, you know, to come out east. And, and you know, it was time to spend some time with my parents before the inevitable. And so it was, it was really nice. And here, you know, you you can hit New York in a day. You can hit D.C. in a day. You, you're pretty central, so it's really nice. So that was sort of, again, another sort of planned reason why. I came back to East Coast be with uh, my parents, but also, you know, I just thought it was a good location business-wise. How's the business evolved? Like, what did you start out serving or produce? What did you start out producing when you opened the shop 18 years ago and like where you are now? How has that changed? We do a claw chocolate and we do that brand and we kind of sort of play with the kind of dwell magazine meets you know, it's definitely more innovative with the parallel bars, the Mondiants, which have just gotten worldwide attention, which are kind of funky in, in their own right. Those are delicious. Yeah, I, I, they're, you know, some chefs that I truly respect say that the most amazing things I've ever had. So we're really, and that's just being goofy one day and just seeing how we can make a flattened truffle for those who haven't had it before. But uh, we also want to keep our foot in the tradition. So we do some very traditional style ganaches and things like that i think it's important to sort of highlight tradition and always keep one foot there i think there's too much this sounds horrible but almost too much innovation sometimes where you know people have to do stuff to be wacky and kind of set themselves apart but if you can do some if you can do a creme brulee i always say like you know perfectly then that's okay 
but most people can't do a, a beautiful, perfect creme brulee, so they do a wacky, like ginger, passion fruit creme brulee, or sort of hide the imperfections. So, uh, I I believe that a little bit in airbrush chocolate now. That's a very easy way to make beautiful looking chocolate and and sort of mask any you know imperfections of enrobing and things like that. Uh, it's absolutely gorgeous for those you know how the people are now airbrushing molds with cocoa butter. Uh, it's a new technique. And uh, we do some of it, but I think it's really important to sort of highlight the classic still. And I don't know a lot about chocolate and where, you know, what the different countries and styles are like. Do you have a favorite that you lean towards? I don't. And that's why, you know, a lot of people you see, like, I'm a Swiss chocolatier or I'm a French chocolatier. I purposely worked all over the world and, you know, the Japanese with technique and just how meticulous they are was just beautiful and their flavor some of their even like green tea or you know soba flavor um ganaches are kind of interesting but every country does things just slightly different so you might unfortunately after you know before the 14 years like at 12 years in i might work in belgium and pick up two things that whole year i was in belgium so but those two years really you know or those two things really made a difference so you know of course your learning curve slows down unfortunately uh, I wish it would keep going at the same rate as when you start out. But, you know, just those two things alone are worth that year of, of working in that one place. So, you know, a lot of people like to work in a place and then switch and then they keep switching and switching. But I think it's important to stay in a place and, and also learn because those two things you learn, you might, you know, will definitely help you in the long run. Well, it sounds like you aren't doing a lot of crazy, wacky stuff, but where do you find inspiration? Like, are you trying well define wacky well define i mean wacky you know crazy. Like, like you were saying like you know passion fruit creme brulee like maybe not your thing like go for a, a classic type thing so are you doing i mean the mondants are innovative but where are you kind of pulling inspiration from these days you know we were so thrilled and we that was one of my goals and we really to be in the moma gift shop and being from madison and wisconsin you know flank right comes to mind and the whole, I mean, I'm old enough to have lived through the mid-century modern and having, you know, Ames chairs growing up and, you know, when they're inexpensive. So I just, that modern design or IE, you know, it's not modern anymore, but sort of that sort of modern stint on things and keeping it simple, clean, you know, very like the Danish Japanese style is, is I love that stuff. And, you know, define wacky. I mean, is a ginger caramel wacky? It's, we don't want to be kitschy like we don't want to put bacon and chocolate and things like that i don't think that works i mean it has kind of a shock value you know when we go the, the craziest flavor that we've done that i don't consider crazy is a preserved lemon with uh black olive so you're sort of mimicking traditional moroccan flavors and you're basically picking up the saltiness from the olives with the saltiness in the in the lemon and the citrus so you know it's it, it's interesting what you know, it's considered wacky and new. and But also chocolate is very very traditional. And you usually go to chocolate when you want something to sort of comfort you or, you know, you just want something that's simple and tastes good. So it's you're balancing those two worlds a little bit. Well, I think the sometimes the wackiness is to stand out, which, you know, one of the questions I like to get to is how do you stand out? This is a market that's I don't know if you'd say it's oversaturated or full up, but there's a lot of choices for chocolate, even high-end chocolate. So how do you differentiate? How do you get people to come into your shop or buy your stuff online when there's already a decent amount out there? 
I think we're sort of under the radar because we've intentionally kind of gone the MoMA or Dwell magazine design and also flavor that a lot of not everyone appreciates. You know, like green tea, or we do sort of under. If there's any complaints about our chocolates, usually that the flavor isn't pronounced enough because we are a chocolate company, so we want our chocolate to taste and then have it sort of back up or be supportive by a ginger or a green tea or passion fruit or something like that. You're not going to get this wallop of passion fruit and then in the back, you kind of go, oh, yeah, there's chocolate there a little bit. So, you know, that's one thing we consider with with our design i think so then is some of it marketing like it sounds like you're trying to have like an an aesthetic uh you know like when you talk about like dwell and moma i mean that that's a certain style and i think yeah it's definitely you gotta kind of have some marketing there behind you and that comes back to like having people working with you and helping figure out what that plan looks like i mean to be Honest, we do kind of, you know, like, oh, we're missing a, a nut component, right? We don't, we're, so then we create something really groovy with, with a liquidy car- or a chewy caramel with a hazelnut. Or we do sort of pick and design things around a, a collection or, you know, sort of like an artist would paint certain styles or a furniture maker would design or almost like a fashion, you know, would have different labels to, to design for, for different people you know so we obviously we love the destination bars because they're relatively simple and we do a phl bar they're all based on airport codes and so like how can we make something that's approachable that literally someone can buy and eat and sort of enjoy while they're driving down the road so that's kind of like our sort of theory behind that one but then we're thinking of the parallel bars which are six lines of chocolate but two flavors so the flavors sort of merge and kind of go across the bar while you're eating it. I mean, it's not going to be a large, you know, jump from, you know, mushroom and then thyme. And the mushroom is not going to be like obnoxiously pronounced. It's going to be just sort of subtly. So you get this umami sort of earth tone of mushroom. Yeah, I got to try those at the Philly Chef Conference. Uh, really delicious. Obviously, I'm biased, but I think I think that's kind of cool. But there again, is that crazy? Is that wacky? Yes, a is that? Bit. But, you know, that's literally hanging out after service with a chef friend with a glass of wine and like, okay, you know, what do you want me to see out of chocolate? And they're like, yeah, make something with mushroom, like, you know, just trying to sh- – and I'm like, okay. And so, we, you know, we like, you know, making things that sound weird, but then once you try, it's like – it would be amazing on a cheese plate, for example. It's all in, in when you serve it, how you serve it. When did you start doing online? I mean, the internet has changed things. 18 years ago, I'm sure you probably weren't selling chocolate online, but now that's a, a viable business path for people. I think almost from day, at least the first year, we had an online presence. And then the shopping cart probably was added that same first year. Really? That seems like, I mean, like 18 years ago, e-commerce was Don't still, quote me on uh, that. Yeah. But, you know, e-commerce, uh, now everyone's doing it. But I think that was kind of a rarity. Yeah, I mean, and now it's amazing. I mean, w- because we're so unique, and I mean, it's it's interesting who we don't we do some things, some really interesting projects with like Nick Elmy in in Philadelphia. He's been great. I mean, we do all the Four Seasons stuff, but as far as you know, getting the reach out there, it's been great. When we're nationwide, we're shipping nationwide to every you know, state and then Japan. And then we're actually shipping more and more to Europe, which is really interesting. We're getting known for this sort of design. I'm, I would never compare ourselves to the Ames, but a, we're doing something different with the Mondiants and the Parallel Bars and um, the Peruvian National Truffle. 
is just so simple, but something is going on. Something really special is going on with the Peruvian National Chocolate. What is that? It's, uh, it's the same chocolate bean or chocolate that was featured on the Anthony Bourdain show when we took them down to to Peru. But we make a truffle with it, and it's purely just butter, cream, chocolate. But it was Best Truffle in America by Food and Wine or Bon Appetit, I forget. Oh, one of the one of those small publications. Yeah, no, it's like embarrassing. I should keep the tap, but it's not really why we do it. But um, but they they gave us a huge shout out about that, and it's so funny because it's not airbrushed, it's not gimmicky, it's not multi layered, it's not. It's just pure chocolate, and because of how many white beans are in this chocolate? There's still full flavored, full high percent cacao, but it's sort of lighter in flavor, but it lasts in your mouth for you know ten minutes later almost. So uh, it's the chocolate that that how I was introduced to Eric Repair and how he sort of got noticed or took notice of us, and that led us down the path of the Good and Evil Bar with with Bourdain and and him. rest in peace. Yes. It's kind of funny. That's the simplest one we do. Simplest one, but it's all technique driven. Again, that's kind of, you don't see that when you eat it, but behind the scenes, it's highly, it's really interesting how we make it, but it seems like a regular truffle. That was the first time I remember seeing you in a big publication. Again, you know, when I was living in Westchester, it was like, you know, oh, it's like a nice, quaint little small chocolate shop. Like a lot of places have small chocolate shops. And then having moved away and then seeing you in a national publication, I was like, oh, damn, like, this is like some serious stuff. I mean, doing a collab with Eric Repair and Anthony Bourdain's no, you know, no small feat. Yeah, I still laugh about that. I mean, it's still, I mean, you can't, you can't plan that. Now, do you like doing those collaborations? Uh, is it fun to kind of work with other people and other businesses? And I do, actually. I like it a lot because we know what we know. And, you know, if I set on my designer hat and you know, kind of like, oh, we're going to design a new line for Thanksgiving or for whatever. I kind of know what direction I'm going to go in. But if you start working, like we're doing a project, it's already been launched, so I think I can talk about it, but um, with John George, and we're doing a deconstructed Thai green chili curry thing. And, you know, it, working with him versus working with Repair, it's just totally different. I mean, Repair is, you know, very subtle, very sort of umami it's just sort of very very zen um no pun intended there but and john george he wants his flavors really forward so the chili is like scorching hot and the lime is like totally lime forward so it's really interesting to work with these guys and and you pick up different style points and it's like oh it's really interesting it's like a chef learning different cuisines you know like what soraya and those guys are doing it's you know they're doing Condessa and every time they go to a new cuisine and, and master it, they're going to learn something that will help their other kitchens as well. Do you still get out and get to be around with people, work with people? And I guess if not, do you miss that? Because I find that's one of the things a lot, you know, most of the people on my show are solopreneurs or have small teams and they don't get to continue learning and they're not working with people. Well, the, the ideas of hanging out with other chefs after work, like at, you know, one o'clock in the morning, I mean, I miss that, but I'm also not 24 anymore. So, uh, you know, those things have changed. I try and get out about, you know, I, you know, there's some amazing chefs in, in, in Philly right now. And James Matty, the pastry chef from Sarai, is, is great to sort of hang out with and see what he's doing. And of course, we're very good friends with Fork and that whole team. Yeah. So it's, you, every time you hang out, I mean, even the mushroom and thyme was, you know, just, hanging out with someone, like I said, just late night, just 
you know, sort of figure out what we can do that's funky. So I think you're always inspired when you hang out with smarter, more talented people than you are. Find find who's doing amazing stuff, and hopefully you can you know learn something from. Did him. I see you did a collab with Victory Beer? Yeah, that was a f- one of the first ones. It was the first collab that they did, and it was again sort of our, I wouldn't say impish, but kind of you know everyone's doing champagne truffles. You know, it's one of the things: champagne, raspberry, with some other you know caramel. It's like the cliche of of a chocolate assortment has to have those in it, and we're like, hey, what's this? No, we're gonna stop making champagne truffles and we're gonna make a beer truffle. I love uh I love their beer. I had Bill Kowaleski on the podcast uh last year and then as a tie in I did some uh beer dishes using their stuff. I actually did a beer truffle. I mean, my truffles are not anything like yours, but I think I did okay. Like a hand rolled truffle, not like a very fancy, just like melt my chocolate in beer. You know, I wasn't a beer guy and I wasn't a beer guy with food and it was it, and this is a shame since I lived in Belgium and other places. And till I was blessed with have, being at the tryout dinner of Terence Fleury at Fork when he was a chef there. And he did a, a beer pairing with his food. And I'm like, okay, now I get it. So um, I love the fact that, you know, you can continue learning or you have these ideas that you think are like, well, beer is overrated and then – someone like his talent comes along and you're like, oh, okay, now I get why people are excited about beer. I didn't like beer when I was younger and it wasn't really until I moved to the Philly area and we had so many great craft breweries. I mean, now they're a dime a dozen everywhere, but you know, back in 2002, I guess when we moved to Westchester, like, you know, you had Iron Hill there, but getting into Philly, like you had some really great places like Monks and Standard Tap and places I like to hang out. And I got in with a crowd of people who liked some really good beer. And that's kind of where my love of beer started was when I was in in the Philly area. You know, Victory is a sort of an interesting story because I think I like to think, as I said, I'd like to think that we're similar and they do... They don't do anything – well, they've started since the new ownership, but they didn't do funky stuff. They just did it really well. And I think that's – if you had to describe a clot, I know people would – well, they mentioned the mushroom. Like, that's not true. But I think to us, everything seems to have a purpose and it doesn't seem strange because it has a purpose. And like, this is why this is you know, interesting to have the mushroom in time. Yeah, I see the, the sort of philosophy of victory very similar to ours. What about longevity? I mean, did you ever think about throwing in the towel? Was there a time where it was like, okay, I've had enough of this. It's not working. You know, yeah, at, at different points, you're like, what am I doing this? But then you, that's the, that's the fun part is keep, you know, over, overriding that urge to throw it in. And you learn very simply or you know, very quickly that great things will happen or not happen the minute you give up. So, I think anyone's had a small business. I'd say, yeah, we've had times when we've been frustrated. Um, throwing in the towel, I'd never, I never, I said never has happened with me. I mean, it's just hard. It's hard having a small business, especially these past couple of years. I mean, how, how was 2020 and last year for you? It was surprisingly well. And that's why I think we went out of our way to support the restaurants in Philly with any, anything we could do, we tried to do. And also for the hospitals and because with all our, you know, interline, interline, you know, presence, we did amazingly well. I mean, all things considering, you know, the, the key is how do you produce in that environment 
and keep everyone safe. And that was the main, I mean, what we sort of rigged up here with curtains and dividers and, you know, filters and face masks. I mean, to work with a mask and a shield in a kitchen is not the most pleasant thing, but the team was just, they knew the purpose and they knew the goals. And so they were amazing with that. I like to talk about goals. Are you someone who sets goals? And if so, you have anything that you'd want to share either short-term, long-term, like what you're working on? I think, I mean, our goal is just to keep doing the quality that we're doing and do it, you know, uh, you know, with a certain, try to do it with a certain style and grace as, you know, the old, uh, uh, Clint Eastwood movie. But I think it's important for us to, you know, continue taking care of our staff. I mean, we, for 10 years now, have, have had, you know, matching 401k, full healthcare benefits, you know, PTO, all those things. And, you know, we did that way before a lot of people started doing just to maintain their, because I was used to the European system. So the minute we could start affording it, we, we did it. And this things like that just, it has to be, it has to run smoothly and with a certain efficiency and, and the quality and the climate of, of where, you know, the people coming to work. You know, I've worked in factories where the 40 people that come in were just miserable and they're just, you know, just working. It wasn't a passion to them. So we want to continue sort of having this culture here where we, you know, if you really want to go work in Japan for a couple of weeks and have that experience, I can send you there. If you want to go work up at numerous restaurants up in New York, even in the savory side, I can send you there. So, you know, we're kind of all over the place is what we can offer people, you know, not just PTO, but also, you know, sort of a life experience, even if it's something that they don't want to be a baker, but they want to work for an amazing baker, I can send them somewhere in Europe or in Germany or so it's, it's, we're kind of all over the place with, you know, sort of a lifestyle kind of way of running a clot. And that's some reasons why we've stayed small. I mean, we're a lot larger than people I think perceive us as, but you know, we're in 22 Whole Foods and a bunch of other, you know, products here and there. We do a couple lines for some Swiss companies. But to me, it's growth is not the number one thing. Growth growth with all those added benefits and, and keeping the culture where everyone's happy to work here. You know, there's always a couple people that don't work out for whatever reasons. But I would say if you talk to the team here, they're all generally happy to be here and they're motivated and they're exciting to do new things. So who who is your team and where are they coming from? Are they culinary students? Are they people who want to have careers in pastry and chocolate? I would say they're all across. We have two people that have graduated from culinary stu- uh, school. We have a couple of people that graduated from Westchester and were the perfect fit for mentality and, and stayed on. And then sort of a hybrid of people with culinary and other experiences. So it's, you know, it's, I hate to quote you know, like all these business books, but you know, we, we hire the person, then we figure out where they fit. And that's always been the case. So we might have hired you to be our marketing director, but, you know, we found out actually you're really good at, you know, running something else. So we'll just put you there. And if that's what you want to do. And we also, like I said, what, where do you want to be in this organization? And we've usually tailored their position to what they want to do. I mean, there's always stuff you don't want to do in a job, but, you know, we try and, you know, we're not perfect that way, but... And that seems to work out really well. And people, you know, and even if like, hey, I would really like to learn that. So we just, you know, I come in Saturday, we teach them how to airbrush or do show pieces or something like that. 
or you know if I have certain connections with with kitchen chefs and, and I could place somebody in an amazing kitchen even after they decide to leave here uh, I'm glad to do that because that's what happened to me in Europe Looks like I missed the boat. I should have just uh, asked you if you were hiring when I lived there. It seems like I would have had a, a much different career path and maybe I would have gotten to go some cool places. We're a very interesting culture here. And I think, you know, everyone is so motivated. And but because of that, we attract a certain person and also we we do some amazing things, you know, so it's it's an exciting time for us. I definitely feel what do you recommend for people who want to get into this as a career? Should you go to culinary school? Should you do what you did, travel to Europe, go to different places? Like, how does someone get started in chocolate? I wish they would have almost like a six-month culinary school where you learn all the, you know, when proteins coagulate, all like all these sort of the the book smarts that you need, and then the rest is is find the best kitchens to work for. You know, or even kitchens that you respect because they have, you know, the new style of kitchens and how they run it. Because that all run, wears off of you. I mean, I, when I was younger, unfortunately, I worked in a few bad kitchens where all I did was pick up bad habits. And I just worked at some place out of convenience. Like, oh, I need a job, so I'm going to work there. But if I had given a little more effort, I mean, in hindsight is I did okay and I worked in some amazing places. But I always think about, oh, I should have. I should not have turned that job down, you know, but I didn't want to learn another language. I didn't want to work in another language I didn't speak. So, or some other silly excuse when I was younger, but yeah, always surround yourself with the best people. Even, you know, if there's two places in town and one's a world-class chocolatier and the other one's like a mediocre bakery, but you really want to do bakery, I would still go work for the chocolatier because you're going to learn more on just how to work and, and ethics and and just the whole culture of doing something really well than going to work for something mediocre. Even that's what your passion is. I know that might make no sense to some people, but um, it'll pay off in the long run. No, that makes total sense. It goes back to kind of the hiring for the person and, and attitude and not the skill set, that it's the the core building blocks of how you work. So it, it makes so much sense. Yeah, like working in the butcher shop, uh, which I mentioned earlier. I mean, learning how to make blood sausage. I'm never going to make blood sausage, but just seeing how they make it, is, you know, they call it fluence in, in Cologne and the Kurdish dialect there. But it's just keep being curious and keep learning and don't switch jobs every three months. You know, you yeah, <laughs> it's another thing. Well, I guess talking about knowledge, what do you wish you knew before you opened your own business? Like, is there something that you were really not prepared for and was like, oh, I maybe would have learned I don't know, accounting or something before I did it? You know, I wish I would have taken more notes on places I worked at, or I wish I would have kept those notes. Um, it's more, you know, I've forgotten so much stuff about certain pastries or, you know, baking and things that I, you know, it's all in my head still, some of it, but there are a lot of like just even temperatures or, you know, some of the, th the things I learned about flowers and different flowers when I was baking in, in Europe. Those are things that um, I kind of miss. Everyone that works here should have a notebook and take notes because you, you know, 20 years from now, it's like, wow, what? how did they get that flavor into that ganache? And then they'll be like, man, I wish I remembered that. 
Well, now technology is amazing, right? Like you've got your phone, it's a notepad, it's a camera, it's an audio recorder, you can do video. I mean, like there's no excuse not to be documenting what you're doing. No, not at all. As long as you can control it. I mean, I worked in kitchens that had strict no phone policies and I was always pushing back against my GM and saying like, yeah, I get it. I don't like cooks like texting their girlfriend while they're on the line, but we need to be making notes and, and, you know, kind of documenting our journey, you know, I kind of lean on the more modern side of that kind of thing, as opposed to like, no phones in the kitchen. Because it's slippery slope. That's why I like notebooks and nobody in the here has a phone on them at work. Uh, Because if you're focused and you're, you know, really work at work, of course, I'm showing how old I am, but I am paying you to work, not be on your phone. So to me, it's, I know I sound like, you know, get off my lawn, you know, grandpa, but it's sort of interesting. Like, wait, I'm paying you, but you're texting your, and I know that's not what you're saying, but, but you're texting your friend, right? Like how, like, you know, so. Well, it is hard because you open your phone to take a photo and then you see a text and you go down that rabbit hole. Like that's how technology gets you, right? Like you open Facebook to send one message and next thing you know, it's 45 minutes later. And where did that time go? Yeah. And, you know, I've people that work in the office have worked in the office and there's this industry norm that you can sit and answer emails while you're at work. And I'm like, wait a minute. Uh, Yeah, it seems odd to me. I mean, but I'm, I'm of the era when I grew up and I worked where we had no iPhone. So. You know, the great photos I I missed out on taking is because we didn't have a camera in our pocket. I didn't really answer the question about what I wish I knew more. I mean, obviously, I, w- I just wish I had more of a businessman's mentality versus, uh, I wouldn't say artist, but more chef. I mean, we've done okay, but it's it's just interesting to keep, you should keep learning on things you don't know. You know, I keep, it seems like the mantra today is be curious, but. You're not going to know everything when you start your own business, that's for sure. I'm someone who always wants to be learning something, you know, like, even if it doesn't seem pertinent to the job at hand today, you never know what you're going to need. And I always go back to culinary school of like, you know, I was 18 and what I thought I was going to do, I didn't end up doing. And when you're in the midst of it, you're kind of, I don't want to say like blowing things off, but like you're in nutrition class and learning vegetarian. It's like, I'm never going to want to cook vegetarian. And then like 20 years later, you're like, oh, wow, I wish I paid more attention in that. Yeah, I wish I had those notes. And, you know, there's all this amazing stuff I did. These like sort of sponge cakes and things we did in Japan with a wooden frame and things like that, that I wish I would have paid more attention to. So, you know, when it's appropriate, you know, take photos, ask questions. Great words of advice. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I've enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you. If you have any more questions, please let me know. And uh, I love talking to uh, to you too as well. Was there anywhere you want to send people to? Website, social media, all of it? I mean, check out, you know, iCloudChocolate on Instagram and Facebook. And also, you know, obviously iCloudChocolate.com is our website for, for purchasing and just kind of see the products that we're making and designing. Great. I'll send everyone there. Uh, links will be in the show notes as well. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And to all of our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. This has been Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Go to chefswithoutrestaurants.org to find our Facebook group, mailing list, and chef database. The community's free to join. You'll get gig opportunities, advice on building and growing your business, and you'll never miss an episode of our podcast. Have a great week.